Welcome to the Variety Hour on AM 990, where local leaders talk Memphis. Listen to you, move your mouth. I bet you come from way down south. Now don't tell me, let me guess. You from the town that I love best. Talk Memphis, I wish you would. Talk Memphis, you sound so good. Talk Memphis, high on the bluff. I swear I can't get enough. Welcome to Talk Money on AM 990. Now, here are your hosts, Jim Shoemaker and Keith Quinn. Welcome to Talk Money here on AM 990. I'm Keith Quinn here with Jim Shoemaker. Jim, good morning. Well, good morning, sir. I mean, it's a beautiful, I mean, a beautiful Friday morning. And beautiful that, Friday morning. It's good to be back in the studios. Art's kind of taking care of us this morning. And Both he, of us were out last week. You know, week. and he, he made a comment, you know, he kind of walked in and said, oh, you guys again. What's wrong? I don't know. You know I, I don't mean, know. Uh, you know, speaking of OU guys again, you know the Royals are in town. I mean, right? There's a lot of a lot of we've had some Royal sightings downtown. downtown I think they uh, think they wandered into Rendezvous. Uh, I don't you know, know check what the out. big fuss is though. I really, I mean, that's um, that hadn't. <laughs> I mean, we've had Prince Mongo here for years. <laughs> so I mean, that's I right. As if we don't have royalty. That's right. We've on. got royalty here. So what's the big deal? I mean, Prince Mongo, the Royals of England. I don't know. Of well, course, was, I'm sure that's not a good comparison. But hey, I was talking to Chris White on his way out and you know we had said i, I used to live in england and of course you know the right. royals in england are right. a big, huge deal right. i mean well, they're a very big, big deal, deal here too yeah and it's it's you amazing know? uh the kind of did you get uh, your invitation to the wedding by the way I mean, uh, uh, of course i did yeah good, yeah good. handwritten you, you yeah. and i could go together yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> but we've got a great program today i mean uh, a lot of good information today we do uh, fortunately there's been a little bit of a, a trend we finished up through april and it's kind of may day you know we end of may and there's some numbers that I think May kind of tells us right. Would you believe, if you think about this, May is is kind of the hump month, if you think about it, for as returns, if you look at as far as history is concerned. Since 1990, May ranks as the sixth as far as giving us returns. On average, in a 24-year period, May returns a little over 1%. A little over so, 1%. And, yeah. of course, every time at this year, we always get the, should we sell in May and Absolutely. go away? Absolutely, sell in May and go And you'll hear the media begin. You to, will. Really, that'll hype up pretty strong. And by the time we get through the mid part, that's kind of the question. That'll be a comment. And you'll have calls from people saying, hey, they sit on MSBC. I need to get out of the market. I get out of the market. It's sell in May and go away. Right. So that's uh, really kind of an either, you know, either or type thing. But we have... Uh, we have a, a really good guest in the first half who's going to share some very insightful information as far as the economy. But the second half is a superstar. That's what do you right. Think? The second half, we've got Nathan Green. Nathan Green. And, uh, I mean, a guy, one of our guys from Nashville office. That's right. And, uh, He's going to give us something about the emotional side of investing, and that's uh, incredibly important. It is important because, really, that's kind of what we're talking about with this sell in May and go away. It, it, it really is. It so really I'm looking is. forward to literally helping us get through some of the the emotions, the language, and what people need to be very sensitive and very aware of as they're thinking through this process. It is. And, of course, as you said, David's going to talk to us about the economy. But the other thing we saw this morning, major, major jobs report, up 288,000 non-farm payroll jobs. You, was that shocking to you? It was, it was shocking. It was, you know, a little bit of this Especially since the GDP was just Right. GDP kind of, came in at 0.1%. And it's 0.1%. muddling. I mean, <laughs> grinding maybe is a yes. better word. It's just not. And Bob Dahl's coming up in a couple of weeks. And I know he uses that word muddle through or yes. grinding. Right. And I think that's kind of important for us to put that 
I'm looking forward to what we hear. And, uh, you know, he is an economist, and uh, I think it's going to be good for us to, to get some insight of what he thinks about with the job report. Uh, politics. Politics. We're going to talk about that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I knew if I said that word, that would raise no. you to a new high. Actually, not so much. But the reality is, did you know the second year, and we're into the second year of President Obama's four-year term. Right, right. And so if you look at statistics, and I like statistics. You know, I look at the numbers. You look at numbers a lot. This is a number that you wouldn't think about. But if you look at historically, I mean, you go back for the last 80 years. So this is a pretty good historical fact. If you look at the second half of the presidential four-year period, in other words, the beginning of the second half, on average, the market, the S&P 500 on on average, gains about 8.5%. That's a great game. That's pretty good. I would love so to have that. So that's not predicted. We have no, no predictions. gosh, no. But uh, it's kind of ironic that you can look at 80 years and think about it. you ever think that has anything to do with the political side? Uh, no. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of politics, if you've watched anything coming out of Washington this week, uh, the imperial presidency is unraveling before our eyes. Oh, uh, it's incredibly yes, it interesting. Is. I mean, everything that's going on with Benghazi, and a lot of people have talked about that as being a dead story. This latest email that's been released is unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, it is absolutely the smoking gun. Yeah. To hear Jay Carney try and spin that as not being about Benghazi uh, is one of the best tap dances ironic, I've seen yeah. you know, in years. It's yeah. uh, It's been pretty funny. Well, I'm looking forward to the rest of the program. We got our political thing in. You know, I served that up for you. I want you <laughs> well, to... it's a great way to start the program. <laughs> but I know, I mean, just keeping everybody in mind that David Land, who is a certified financial analyst and a portfolio manager, an economist, somebody with Advantage Capital that we have on about once a month, does a great job helping us get through kind of the news media. Right. I'm looking forward to that. Let's take the break. we got to do traffic weather. Maybe they'll tell us something about the Royals or whatever's going on. I'm Keith Quinn here with Jim Shoemaker every Friday morning from 8 to 9 on AM 990, the voice of Memphis. Now we're going to take a quick break, check out what's going on around town with traffic weather, see what's happening in New York with Market Watch, and we will be right back with David Land, Vice President and Portfolio Manager with Advanced Capital Management. Welcome back to Talk Money here on AM 990. Of course, Talk Money is brought to you every week from 8 to 9 by Shoemaker Financial, which has been providing professional advice, quality products, and excellent service throughout the Mid-South since 1978. At Shoemaker, it is not about the plan. It's about the results. You know, Keith, one of the things, we have a little bit of a technical difficulty, I understand, with uh, getting uh, David on the phone, but uh, we'll get to him in just a moment. But I'm glad Nathan's here, and I want to introduce Nathan. Nathan's one of our young advisors in the Nashville office, does a great job, and uh, um, really uh, I appreciate Nathan being here. We'll we'll probably start with Nathan and get back to David in just a second, but let's just, uh, David, I mean, Nathan, one of the things that I, I want to ask, and then we'll we'll talk about with Nathan uh, about this, and then go to David, because reality is emotions from an investor. And I know just last night you did a seminar for a lot of people there in the office. And what do you what do you hear? Or what do you see when you talk about emotions and investing? What do people? How do they respond to that? Do they admit that they get emotionally involved, or, or what do they say? I, I think that it comes in a couple of different forms. Um, the majority of people out there, I think, when they hear emotions in investing, um, what they're hearing is that uh, they're afraid that the market's going to take a downturn. 
And that's that's the primary motivation in terms of, uh, well, for the majority of the populace in that uh, we're afraid of taking losses. What I'm finding more now, though, as we've been in a five-year bull market, the markets have been going up pretty steadily for five years now. Uh, emotions are getting a hold of people not in terms of fear of loss, but in terms of greed. Uh, and Great point. They start to say, you know, the conversations that I've had over the last year have been centered around, Nathan, why are we not just invested in the S&P 500? That's exactly right. If I could just sit in there and, and see my <laughs> stocks go up 30, 35 percent, that'd be fantastic. You're right it would be. Yeah. Because we're up 19 percent well, average annual over the last five years in the it, S&P. It's amazing 19%. that you talk about that because just yesterday, uh, this is a longstanding client for years. I mean, we're talking about 20 years I've worked with this lady. And uh, we were we having a great conversation, and then the reality is about four years ago, five years ago, from the advice of a non-investor, a family member, she just m- forced and said, I'm going to take half of this or actually three-quarters of this money, that uh, a large amount of money that we're managing, and we're going to put it into gold. And she did. <clears throat> and I said, you know, the gold's already run itself up, and it, and then she and I finally have gotten her out of that. But over the period of time, she's lost forty-seven percent. And I mean, a and I mean, and, and now now she's ready to get into the market because you know, of course. And I and I had a long conversation and a long, very long conversation yesterday about I will do this, but you've got to understand that we get we got to take these emotions out. And I'm hoping, and she says she does, she will. But you know how that works. You just hope that's the case, and. I think that's one of the toughest things we do as advisors is helping people manage inv- and, you know, their emotions. And so I, I want people to know, as our listeners, we got David on the phone, and I want to go to David because he's going to give us some insight about the GDP and really about what's going on in the economy. But, Nathan, I think you set us up really great for the second yeah. half of the program. How do we manage the emotions? And I would say one thing about the emotions. I mean, you know, this this whole idea of, of you know, giving into the fear. Well, if you understand it, and I think it's an educational thing, if you understand it, there's really not anything to be scared of. You know, we talked about it yesterday. We were, oh, we yes, were doing is. some training. Yes, there no, is. there is not. If the market drops 25%, 25% now, and it is going to be bloody, and it's going to seem like the end of the world. And guess what? It doesn't change the intrinsic value of these companies one penny. Well, All it means is everything's on sale. Then why? That is so easy for you to say. Well, because I believe it. I believe it a thousand well, I percent. Too. I know it's I true. I've been doing it long. But you know what? People have those emotional issues. Sure. And that's and, the point. And yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to what Nathan's going to tell us, how to work through that. Me too. And, and you know, the reality is you and I do have a lot of insight and, not, you know, and, and understanding because we kind of understand the numbers. Um, but but you can't control emotions are tough. Well, and I was reading someone the other day, and they talked about going through 2008 as an advisor, which we all did. And they said that's almost like combat experience. We got so much experience in such a short period of time, <laughs> which is absolutely true. <laughs> all right. Well, introduce David because David's on the phone, and I really want to hear what David thinks about emotions. That's a great. That's a great thought. Yeah, we're being joined by David Land. David is a charter financial analyst, vice president, portfolio manager with Advantage Capital Management, a frequent guest on the show. And we always enjoy having David on to hear his insights. David, good morning and welcome. Good morning. How's uh, everybody? You're doing good, great, sir. thank you. It's a beautiful day here in Memphis, Tennessee, and we're glad to have you with us on the program. You know, David, one of the things that, that we were talking about, and I know you were listening to us, a little bit about emotions and, and what emotions will do to the average investor. But I know from a reality that you guys deal with that all the time, but 
just kind of, you know, just off the cuff, what, how do you guys control your emotions when it comes to making financial decisions that you're making and you're managing, I mean, this is managing a lot of money for a lot of institutions and, and people like that. So how do you manage your emotions? I, th- I think that's a really good question, and I think everybody faces it, even professional investors face that. And what we try to do is, is set objective targets in our minds about uh, levels that we want to buy certain issues, levels that we might want to sell certain issues. And then we kind of uh, game scenario analysis. If the following things were to happen, how would we react? And I heard earlier when somebody said that uh, stocks could go down 25%. I think you accept that when you choose an asset class. If you choose bonds or if you choose equities or choose real estate, you understand that certain asset classes are more volatile, subject to bigger price swings than others. I think what the investor has to do, whether they're an individual or an institution, is just come up with a framework, an analytical framework, that kind of tries to remove that emotion and say, here's what I'm trying to accomplish. Uh, here's what I'm willing to accept in terms of my downside risk. And if I accept that downside risk, I realize that there's more upside potential. So I think to the best you can, whether you're institutional or individual, you try to set up an analytical framework that helps you uh, when you want to get emotional or when you see those 25% uh, moves in the market, that, that you're prepared for them and you've already thought through, what would I do if this were to happen? You know, that's, uh, a, that, that's you're right on there. I mean, I think about that. I, we used to tell our kids, you know, if this were to occur, how do you react to it? In other words, we would play out the scenario and then and then say, okay, here's the plan. If this happens, you do this. If this happens, you do this. So what you're saying is if you see a downturn of 25%, you've already planned what would you do if that occurred before your emotions are involved. Exactly. And we, we do we, we think about many times uh, when, when the portfolio managers meet, we'll ask ourselves if the following circumstances were to happen, what would we buy in our portfolio? What would we sell in our portfolio? How would we react to best position our, our accounts? And I think that's exactly right. You just kind of ask yourself if the following things were to happen. Uh, what would I do? And I think David said something else that was incredibly important, Jim, when he was talking about what are you trying to accomplish? Because ultimately, you know, it's not your your goal is not a return number. Your goal is what you want to do with that with it's that account. Plan. Yeah, but, it's your plan. But you know, he's using a pronoun in there too, and it's we. You know, I I can't imagine for I remember two thousand eight, and you and I used to sit and huddle and talk and figure out and think dark days dark days <laughs> you know but we we were working on this together so in reality when you build a team around you you've got people that can hold your hand when you need to i know for my investors that's what we were doing a lot a lot of clients we were sitting down holding hands we were working through this instead of tick sticking them out in the corner right. of the parking lot and say figure it out yourself you know and, and, and even great. though we really don't get scared by it, again, I was kind of being a little bit are. off I the cuff. I mean, I know it's a very real thing. If you look down at your account statement and it's down 25%. Now, let's think about what that means because we need to talk in dollar terms. Right. If you have a million-dollar account and all of a sudden you've lost a quarter, quarter of, of a million dollars, dollars, that's emotional. Yeah, that is emotional. David, I want to ask you a question. We just, you know, we, we were talking about the GDP prior to you getting on the line and a little bit about this Bloomberg Surprise Index. I, I really, you know, I've heard that and I've spent a lot of time thinking through that. What do you think? I mean, we're kind of muddling through or grinding through. So give us what, you're, what you see the trends are. Okay, well, uh, we certainly feel that uh, GDP 
is likely, we think, you know, it was what, one-tenth of one percent uh, in Q1. We think that's likely to be stronger, much stronger, uh, for the rest of the year. <laughs> I hope you're right on that one. <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. Well, well, you look at the payroll numbers today, right? The payroll numbers came out just prior to this call. And, you know, it was 288,000, which was better than expected. Uh, the unemployment rate fell again, so I think we're right around 6.3, according to uh, the numbers I saw that came out from the Labor Department. So, so that's better. And, and what we do with the surprise index, so for everybody out there, all the economists try to, to estimate what uh, these economic numbers will be. And two examples would be the payroll numbers we just talked about, uh, the GDP number we mentioned, and then they do some for other markets like uh, spending, and for housing, they'll look at housing starts and pending home sales. And what we try to look at is how did those numbers come in relative to expectations of market experts? And are they upside surprises or are they downside surprises? And what we've noticed is that around those numbers, around the estimates from most economists, there's been very little variation. Now, that's usually kind of a good thing because it means that the economy is behaving as most people would expect. So, wait, wait a minute, David, when you say this, they're in line with expectations. So, if the economy is meeting expectations, that's a good thing. Yeah, yes, sir. We're, you know, right now, one of the things we think is constructive, we believe in uh, inflation is relatively low and likely to stay low. So, let's say that if these economic indicators, everybody was expecting a certain level and everything came in above it. So we had stronger GDP growth, stronger payrolls, stronger housing starts, stronger industrial production. That might be – then people might start to get worried about inflation again. And when inflation picks up, risk assets tend to, tend to suffer a little bit. And we would be concerned that if we had a lot of volatility around that economic data, that risk assets would sell off a little bit, whether they were stocks, whether they were corporate bonds, anything that has a risk premium with it. Uh, if if there's more volatility around the numbers, generally speaking, that's bad. You know, the market doesn't like surprises. Yeah, you're like- exactly right. That's that's a great point. When we come back, I, I wanted to ask, see if we can get David to give us some insight. I mean, when he when he kind of says these expectations, right, David? I want you to think while we take this break. Are, are is this controlled expectations? I mean, are we kind of controlling this growth, or is this kind of the the norm after this long, you know, after a recession? I would have thought we would have been picking it up. I thought we'd have been a little bit more heated up at this point. And so, but I hear what he's saying, so I kind of want to get into that a little bit when we come back, and uh, we'll get back into emotions too. Just joining us, I'm Keith Quinn here with Jim Shoemaker every Friday morning from 8 to 9 on AM 990, the voice of Memphis. Now let's go to Charles Osgood for the Osgood file, but stick around. We'll be right back with David Land and Nathan Green. Welcome back to Talk Money here on AM 990. I'm Keith Quinn here with Jim Shoemaker. Well, you know, we were talking to David before we took the break. And, David, I, I, again, let me go back to this question because one of the concerns that I have is we're not normally after a recession, and we had a, a deep recession in 2008, 2009. Um, and as we begin to pull out, we've had, of course, a long extended bull market. The, 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 the market has done well, but our economy it's, it's muddled along. And, 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 Keith, you know, you and I talk about that a lot. And I guess, David, you, you were talking about the surprise index from Bloomberg. And, of course, that, it, that you know, the data that we see so far has been kind of in line of expectations. 
Are our expectations low at this point? Do you think we're just not expecting much out of this of this economy? I think that's I think you could say that we post uh, the recession that we have diminished expectations. I think that's a fair statement. I, I think so, too. And, I, you know, a, a lot of the problems that we've that had. That scares with the, me a little bit. Well, it, it's a lot of the problems that we've had. Uh, and, you know, I don't blame it on either party, but it's it's because of the fiscal policy coming out of Washington. I have to agree with you there. I mean, mm-hmm. I would have expected more. And, again, that is kind of the concern I have is that we've we've lowered our expectations, not expecting much out of Washington. Not expect. That's kind of a, a not a. It's a total lack of leadership. You don't have a that's president a that's coming out that believes in the fundamental greatness of this company or country like Reagan did. If we had somebody out there that was pushing this and that their policies were supporting that position, we would be much better. And off. you know that that is something that you you don't think about, but when you begin to lower expectations. It's 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 a matter of just saying, well, I'm okay with this. I'm that's satisfied. right, right. So, and that's not good. Yeah. All right. You mentioned in inflation, David. You mentioned the fact that that seems to support uh, that the inflation is stable and you know low. That supports risk assets. I've got to ask you a question about interest rates. That's been a topic. It seems to still surface as important. U.S. compared to say other developed countries, how are we looking with our interest rates? Uh, you know, we look pretty attractive. Uh, the U.K.'s got levels around us, and I think it might surprise most people out there to know that uh, the U.K. and France both have lower 10-year rates than the U.S., which is kind of surprising. Can we sustain this, though, much longer? I mean, how long can we sustain rates staying where they are? I mean, is that going to be an issue that we've got to are, – don't rates – aren't rates going to have to go up? I mean, I mean, that's you know the answer to that already. Eventually, yeah. eventually they're going to have to. When should that begin to happen? I would have thought. I mean, seriously, I would have thought once we had started the buy down on QE three, and we they're seen, keeping up with that. You know, had another meeting this week, another ten billion dollars off the table, so. and that doesn't seem to be happening. David, your thoughts? That's why we're looking at uh, everything we've talked about. That's why we're looking at the economic surprise index. If the economy were to start to exceed expectations. Uh, we, I think that's one of the keys that we're looking for. Wow. And the reason we like the surprise index, it covers a broad swath of the economy. So the, he used the words exceed expectation if the economy begin to exceed expectations. All right. That's, uh, that no, means, so if it does, then that supports risk assets, right? Yeah, right. So that begins to move us into that direction. Uh, interest rates. You know, I mean, I was reading recently I mean, about home prices and the fact that we've got commercial real estate and the fact that home sales is reaching a $5.38 billion in sales last year. And uh, since then, we've had fewer existing home sales. Seven of the last eight months, we have not been able to hit our marks in in selling homes. So there's this new, maybe people are not wanting to actually uh, buy homes. In fact, the highest median price has gone up. But people are renting more. But the, but we set the highest ever median price and average price for new homes in March well, of this year. Highest ever. I mean, so what I, I don't know what that I means. Well, that tell us? That's, that's, uh, maybe David will help us out. But I do know that we're renting more. So, David, from a commercial real estate standpoint, or, you know, is that means, you know, is, is because that going to trickle down to what's happening with housing or is housing and commercial different or give me some of this home this home stuff is it what's the demand for homes look like okay uh yes commercial and and residential house uh real estate are are different and different things are driving them uh i think you hit on it exactly right when you said uh median home prices for new homes are, are very high we've had 
you know, all home prices have risen, and that's kind of pushed the affordability because I think the rise in home prices has exceeded income growth uh, for the average or the median person out there. That's a great point. Yeah, so so I think it's really uh, affordability has gotten pushed. And then, you know, you talked about 2008. Credit's never really been completely restored to the housing market. Do you think that's, I mean, I, I'm thinking about people not buying homes. Do, are we going to move away as a country to becoming a non-home buyer to a renter society? Is that, David, do you see that? I mean, is that something you're kind of telling us about? Uh, yes, sir, that is the topic. Uh, you know, home ownership rates continue to fall. And then if you listen to what's coming out of uh, Washington, the focus is, is shifting from affordable housing to affordable renting. And that's that's that to me is not good for us long term. Well, I, I don't know. I've I've read an article, and I wish I could remember the the details, but it was talking about you know this uh, situation in Europe, uh, and that saying in some uh, senses it's better to have more people in renting Ready than in homes. And I and I can't remember the exact details. And I wish I could, and probably shouldn't have brought it up since I can't. David, your thoughts <clears throat> your thoughts about that? I mean, what do you guys think? Is it better for us to be a renting society, or is it better? I mean, there was a whole movement twenty five years ago for us to be. Right, a homeowner society that kind of what got us into this mess. I mean, it's kind of it is kind of what got us into this mess. But it was, I think, it was the right thing. I've always felt like that people had a pride in themselves. Right, but think about yeah. So if it's pride, I mean, that's important. That's important. But is that an economic? David, your thoughts on that? I, I, you know, I I probably have very little contributor. I agree with both you and Keith. the homeowner. That's amazing. I really like David. <laughs> That's amazing. He agreed with us. He marked that down. Can we get that? I, I think you both laid out, laid out the case perfectly. You know, homeownership was a goal, and, and that's kind of what got us into this because we expanded credit to people who probably weren't ready for homeownership. And, and, and Jim, I agree with you that traditionally the benefits of being a homeowner and having pride in you know, sending your kids to school. Uh, in building equity in your house uh, by paying down your mortgage was traditionally very good thing. So I, I think that's the case that you both laid out. I think you're right. Let me give you some. Let me give you some statistics. And I like, you know, we like numbers. But households in the United States, here's a thought, are split between households. Households, 68 percent to 32 percent between homeowners and renters. So that's basically that's okay, a third. Right. A third of us households. Rent homes. One of every three homeowners, one of every three, 32 percent owns their home. Ready for this? Free of debt. That's correct. That's that's from the uh, statistical research. I mean, that uh, from uh, that we've got in the statistical abstract. And, the, that's, and what he's saying is 22 percent of all U.S. households are homeowners with no debt. Sixty eight percent. That's the homeowner percentage times the 32 percent. So 22 percent of the people do not have a debt when they come. So, I mean, there's something to say. I mean, there's something about the fact that we do that. Should it be a higher number? Uh, you know, I would think it should be, but the reality is um, it's the baby boomer generation that's pushing that. we got to see what happens after that. David, let's, let me ask you this. Let me just let's kind of get to this point. Our prices, do you think we're going to see any housing reform? I mean, are we on track for this? Uh, what's the pace? Uh, you know, what do you see? Uh in terms of reforming how we yeah how we buy houses how we, what what do you see from a, from the whole overall cost is that is that going to change this or is renters is renting really going to be the issue? 
I, I what's going to happen is they're, they're trying to reform in the pace of that reform of, of how we, you know, lend on mortgages that our government supported is, is probably going to play out over the next decade or more. Uh, but the price, if you look at the price, think about it this way. It's an insurance policy that the government gives that if somebody defaults on their mortgage, they'll make you whole. That cost is going up, which means that, uh, you know, all other things being equal, the cost of a mortgage loan to a consumer is going up. And, and that will make home ownership, the affordability will get hurt, and, and make renting look like a more attractive alternative. You know, when you think about it, I mean, I, I want to ask Nathan this. Nathan, I mean, from a standpoint of with you working with clients, people buying homes, do you feel like that that when they go through that purchase price and, you know, that, that whole idea of the research they do, the selection, the location, the pricing, the you know, if they're going to get a mortgage – their emotions get very much involved in that. Do you see that with the same emotions uh, from an investment standpoint, or is it a little different? I mean, you're working with a lot of clients, and I know you're a strong relationship builder in your practice, and you do a great job with that. What do you think? I mean, is that something that kind of goes through that process? I, I think absolutely, uh, Even maybe even more so with, uh, with real estate and buying your home and selling your home because it is such a personal thing. You live in it every single day. And I had a conversation yesterday with somebody who bought their house four years ago, you know, at the bottom of the market. Uh, the thought is, hey, the market was tanked then. Now right. it's going to be worth so much more. But what she's seeing is her two neighbors on either side of her sold, sold their houses for way under market value. Wow. Just the last few weeks. And that's emotional. That's emotional. That does she was crying. That does, she said yeah. That. Wow. Well, when we come back, I mean, we've got to go to Rebecca, but when we come back, David, thank you so much. I mean, I appreciate you being with us today. You just, uh, you, he adds a lot of insight. And, he, and I think the fact that we talked about the Bloomberg Surprise Index and expectations being relatively low. That was great. Great. And uh, so thank you, David. I appreciate you very much, sir. Thanks, David. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Have uh-huh. a good day. You have a good day. You know, David, uh, CFA, Vice President of yes. Vantis, and does a wonderful job for us bringing some great insight. I'm looking forward to this guy to my right in just a few seconds, uh, really getting to what happens emotionally with investing. And I know he does a great job counseling his clients, and I'm, I'm looking forward to what he's going to tell And us. for those of you listening on the radio, Nathan Green is sitting on Jim's right, so... <laughs> That's right. We just have to remember this is, that right? is not TV. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> you can't use hand gestures. <laughs> yeah, right. to to my, I said to my right. <laughs> Again, I don't uh, think that means anything to someone Mark, listening on the radio. Can I control his mic for a couple hours here, you know? <laughs> if you're just joining us, I'm Keith Quinn. I'm here with Jim Shoemaker every Friday morning from 8 to 9 on Talk Money here on AM 990. But now let's go to Rebecca Brazier for a Mid-South History moment. But stick around. We will be right back with Nathan Green and talking about the emotional aspect of investing. Welcome back to Talk Money here on AM 990. I'm Keith Quinn here with Jim Shoemaker. You know, I know somebody's going to send me an email. I know that. that uh, About? Well, well, because I compared. I didn't compare Prince Mongo and the Royals. <laughs> I know that's going to happen. I, you know, I didn't say. I just said in Memphis we have our own Royals. That's, I, that's yeah, all I said. I but you know that's going to happen. I mean, uh, yes. uh, I'm not trying to say that the Royals of England are in the same category as Prince Mongo. Yeah, you know, we 
a unique individual. We talk about comparing investments all the time, and I don't think that's quite <laughs> that's apples to apples. Yeah. About. I hear you. We're going to come back with a word, too, after we take this next break coming through this. And got a got a, an investment word, an investment definition. A four-letter word. A four-letter word. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we're going, you know, listen right here on the radio. Yeah, I think the FCC would get us. Into, no, no, that's not the same kind of four-letter word. Our guest, as we introduced to you earlier, is Nathan Green, one of the advisors in our Nashville office. Very, very good advisor. Specializes in professionals and um, and actually in, with pharmacists. Works a lot with pharmacists, but does a wonderful job. And Nathan, what I appreciate more about your practice is the way you communicate with your clients and how you're so effective in the relationship building that you do, and you do a great job listening. And I know last night in the office you were doing a seminar on emotions and mm-hmm. and how people get their emotions and involved in their investings. And so in a summary, kind of start with that. What do you find out that people deal with when it comes to the emotional side of investing? Well, you remember when we first started the program, you're asking me about emotions and what I'm finding. Uh, Over the last five years, bull market, people aren't necessarily afraid of the market anymore. We've got this uh, euphoria. We've got trust in the market. We forgot already. Uh, Recency bias. We remember last year and we don't remember 2008. Isn't that scary how quick we forget? How quickly it happens. uh, but that is good. I mean, that's a positive thing, but it's also something that you have to get people to come back and think through. So mm-hmm. you're, you're right. We're in this euphoric side. That's right. And now because of that, people are starting to want to invest more and more in what they see is going up. Mm-hmm. Hey, if right. I see the market going up in the near future, what am I going to do? I'm going to get in the market. You know, that reminds me uh, that we had a client that literally in, in January, we were going through his annual returns and he wanted to know why his portfolio wasn't equal to the S&P 500. I mean, that was a serious question. This is a sophisticated investor, by the way, a sophisticated business person. Right. And uh, he literally wanted to know if if the S&P was up 30%, why wasn't he up 30%? I've gotten that question, and, too. And that's kind of the, I mean, that thought process mm-hmm. as you're thinking, it, you know, whatever the market's doing, I should be the same. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we're diversified. And I went through it, and he fully understood it after we, and he realized that wasn't a great question. He but he wanted to know. I, right. I thought it was a good question because he really didn't understand it. But the reality is you got to think through that. Now, back to you, Nathan, mm-hmm. from the emotional standpoint. Euphoria, excitement, everything's going up. I want to buy. That's exactly right. And now Keith has some fantastic advice that I hear from him time and time again. And our You have to give him credit. <laughs> I'm sure it came from you. He's just the he's just yeah, the right. I'm just the conduit. <laughs> Do you really? Oh no, I know better than that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you want to go there, Jim. But at the end of the at the end of the day, when we're building portfolios, we're trying to uh, build them in such a way that we cannot possibly make a killing off of any one investment. Great right. point. In contrast, we're not gonna get killed by any one investment. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a quick story here to illustrate the point. Um Jim, are you familiar with the name uh, Ron Wayne? No. He caught me on this yeah, one, so I'm I, glad he got you yeah, too. That's right. <laughs> Did he, so he set me up. That's exactly oh, right. Just, okay, set I you up. remember this. You know, <laughs> record this, okay, for me, Art. I want to go with this. Uh-huh. Um, how about, let's put it another way. Are you familiar with the name Steve Wozniacki? Maybe Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. There you go. Steve Wozniacki, partner to Steve Jobs. That's exactly right. Ron Wayne, one of the original three partners to Apple. Now that I remember who you're talking yeah. about. That's right. Exactly right. Ron That's, Wayne in 1976. I've been out there in there, in there where they started. I That's right. I've seen the pictures. Yeah. He um, was a 10% owner in 1976 when Apple got started. Now, keep in mind, this was a man who wrote the original uh, partnership agreement, right. wrote the original Apple manual, 
right. designed the first Apple logo. Um, and this is a company that year one, 1976, earned $176,000 in sales. Year two, this will blow your mind, $2.7 million in sales. Yeah, that's a pretty good increase. Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Keep, hang on. Yeah, all right. <laughs> year three, $7.8 million in sales. Wow. By year six, they had surpassed a billion dollars in sales. You may or may not know this answer here, but do you know what the Apple is worth right now? No, I don't. As of yesterday, it was $511 billion. What is Ron's, Ron Wayne's 10% share worth of Ten. that 511? Yeah. yeah, that one's a, you know. Yeah, I don't know. 15, oh, you do. You oh, know, 10% do of 500. That's <laughs> 50 that's billion. 50 billion. Million. Yes. Billion with a B for the listeners who can't understand right. me here. Billion yeah. with a B. You know, the problem is Ron Wayne sold his shares year one. For eight hundred dollars, eight hundred dollars, eight hundred dollars. Now the backstory here is important. It wasn't just he got in, he sold it. Ron Wayne had a history where he had started some other businesses before this. Right before, most famously, he he took a gamble, started a, a slot machine company. Um, that didn't work out very well. Obviously, some of the other businesses that he had started in the past, he was he was an entrepreneur. He had that in his blood. But the concept that I want the listeners to hear is that by doing this time and again, he created a, a sense of overexposure to risk. And he could handle it for the first few times. But by the time that it came around and he was poised to make a ton of money, he was so concerned and so sensitive to that opportunity for that risk. That he took his $800 and ran. That he took it and ran. So to the people out there that talk with me about why can't I invest more in the S&P 500 – or in Europe, which looks like it's going to be fantastic over this next year, or next year, who knows what it's going to be. Why can't we do that? Because, you know, even if we get it right, more often than not, I like to think that I would. I like to think I'm a real smart guy, but every once in a while, I'm going to get it wrong. You're going to get it wrong. And when we get it wrong, we're probably going to get it wrong big once or twice. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, when we see those losses, remember, like what we said at the beginning, it's that fear of loss that's the the stronger motivator than the opportunity for gain. So, so you find that people really do fear. I mean, three out of four years of the market goes up, right? Mm -hmm. So, the one year that it goes down is a greater fear. <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. Than that. The, than the other <laughs> you know, I'll give you another story of a specific client of you know, mine. I got to control his microphone because I know we got to take a break. <laughs> I'll tell you what, guys. I do want to hear the story, but I want to hear it in in in, in its entirety. So, let's take a quick break, right. and then we will come back from that let's check out what's going on with traffic and weather see what's happening in new york with market watch stick around we're going to be right back with what i know is going to be a fascinating story from nathan green welcome back to talk money here on am 990 the voice of memphis i'm keith quinn here with jim shoemaker we're speaking with nathan green and nathan was going to tell us a story that illustrates how incredibly impactful that one negative year can be that's exactly right. Um, relatively early in my career, I started working with a client who um, came to me and, and was just remarkably conservative in investing. The kind of person who thinks cash, I can't stand losing anything. Right. Uh, and the more and more I started talking about it, this is, this is a fascinating story to me, a really good learning lesson on exactly this point in that uh, this client in the 1990s had been working with a different advisor. This different advisor had her invested primarily in tech stocks and tech mutual funds. Which, as you know, the tech mutual funds exploded in yes. the 90s. The dot-com era of the day. And uh, of the day, it was the dot-com <laughs> <Right>. era. <laughs> um, 
So what she saw, she started with something nominal, $20,000 invested. By the end of the decade, that had, that had gone up to about $200,000. Pretty fantastic stuff. She had years and years and years of exponential Amazing gains. Amazing market, yeah. One year, the bubble burst. Right. She took that $200,000 and went down to a little less than $100,000. Yikes. And even though if we're looking at over the course of a decade, you turn 20000 into 100000 that's some pretty good returns. When I'm looking at it objectively, point to point, that's still pretty good stuff. Right. But the emotions that she was hanging on to was that one year of loss. And that has shaped every decision that she has made from an investment standpoint for the last 15 years now. And that's the thing that any client, when they hear, when they have that – uh, overexposure to the potential for significant loss. Right. Uh, and when it happens, it's going to shape them moving forward. All right, guys. Now, that is a great story because that is, it shapes her, it shapes her decision making process. How, as professionals, do we sit down with a client then and gradually walk them through a process to get away from doing that? I mean, that's an issue. So how do you change that? How do you manage that? You, you know, you mm-hmm. want to, you following me? Got to, I mean, go with you, Nathan, first. Yeah. Uh, Keith, I'm gonna I'm gonna give an answer, but at the end of the day, I go back to you for all of these answers. But what what I have found to be true is that in building portfolios, there are things that we have to acknowledge. We have to acknowledge the economic trends, long term trends. Stocks outperform bonds, bonds outperform cash. The long term trend is up. We've got to acknowledge that. We've got to build a portfolio that takes advantage of it. We've got to build portfolios that. Um, prevent ourselves from making these uh, what I'll call situational decisions such that Great the S&P 500 looked like it was going to go fantastically up last year. I want to get in it. We've got we've to plan to couch that. Um, but then also we've got to build a portfolio that, that minimizes the, that overexposure to risk. At the end of the day, we do that by diversification and not just – Lots of different stocks, lots of different bonds. We don't want to just have lots of different stuff out there, but we want to be um, intentional with our allocations. We want to have a certain percentage that's going to be aggressively invested in real estate, like we were talking about. Have a certain percentage that's invested in stocks, that's in bonds, in Europe. Uh, And we want to be, again, intentional with that based off of the mathematical trends that we've seen for years and years of the market's existence. I don't know who's trained him up, but somebody did a really good job. Well, that's pretty good. <laughs> you know, that's good. So what's your thoughts? Uh, no, I would say the exact same thing. I think, I think the important thing uh, in building portfolios is, you know, we always talk about looking at that asset allocation because ultimately, you know, that's really going to drive how volatile the portfolio is, how much it moves. So what percentage you've got in stocks or bonds? Because the more stocks you have in it, the more it's going to move up and down. That's okay, but you've got to be aware of that on the front end. So the more stocks you have, you have to be able to accept that loss, that potential pullback. But then the diversification on the stock side is incredibly important. And the most important thing that Nathan, Nathan said that I really liked was being intentional about it. Everything that's in our portfolio is in there for a reason. And we're diversified, not just across uh, geographic areas, but across sectors of the market, uh, across, uh, you know, different, uh, again, uh, things that are driven by different macroeconomic events. So it's all designed to work well together. Uh, you know, I, I think you're both right. I mean, obviously, and uh, I mean, it, it is about design of portfolio. But I'm going to throw a little thought through you, to, to the whole thing. And, and again, both of you are talking about exactly the, the critical aspect of how do you design the portfolio. But I think one of the things that we miss when you talk about emotions, uh, clients sometimes never want to really admit emotions are a problem, especially when you talk about a euphoria 
They they they're excited. They they want to do this, and and they don't want to admit that you know that that the inability to have the sleep factor of not being worried when the market corrects ten percent. Everybody goes through that. I think our job as advisors, as client, where we work with clients, is is to structure the portfolio based on what they tell us, to diversify it based on the risk, but then to really ask the right questions to understand as much about that emotional side with the client as we possibly can. And if we don't do that, I think we're missing the boat. I think we can focus sometimes on numbers and design of portfolios more than we do understanding really what the client's trying. And sometimes it takes multiple times of asking the questions, not just once or twice. I think that is that is exactly right. And, and a lot of times, you know, when I'm talking about the numbers from where I sit in the firm, it's incredibly important for me because, Absolutely. you know, I'm, I'm working on the portfolio design. But talking to a client, uh, you know, I watch myself when I talk to clients because I don't like to talk to them in these terms. I don't really think that's the important part, as you said. I, I agree. I have one last thing. Nathan, great job. I think, I mean, really you do a good job with this. I think clients, if they just understand that if somebody starts out with them telling them asset allocation, diversification, rebalance, and that's all they talk about, they've missed the point of understanding the client. Our job as advisors is really to understand what the client's trying to because do. Because if I get you to buy into the asset allocation and you're down 30% and you sell out and go to cash, I have not done you my have job. You've not done your job. So understanding and really asking the questions. So thanks, Nathan. Great job. Absolutely. Thanks for Great having job, me. Nathan. I hope you've enjoyed our show. We had David Land, of course, from Advantage Capital Management, gave us great info. And then Nathan Green talking to us about the emotional cycle of investing. Glad to have Jim Shoemaker back in hey, the studio. It's good to be back it too, was sir. fun. I enjoyed it. I want to thank Art Frederick, our program director, Francis Fortner, our guest coordinator, Jeff Long, our compliance officer, Drew Johnson, who writes our Mid South History Moments, and Rebecca Brazier, who reads them. I'm Keith Quinn. And I'm Jim Shoemaker. Please join us next week when we will help you make the most of your money. Jim Shoemaker and Keith Quinn are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Securian Financial Services Incorporated. Securities dealer member FINRA SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated.